Hi everyone, I'm 2010 Olympic silver medalist and TSN curling analyst Cheryl Bernard. On this, the fifth episode of Behind the Hack, my guest is Eve Muirhead, an Olympic bronze medalist and 2013 world champion whose team has consistently been ranked in the top five in the world during the current Olympic cycle. A quick word from our sponsor and then Eve Muirhead. Curler's Corner is located inside the Calgary Curling Club. It is your one-stop curling shop no matter where you are in the world. Celebrating 24 years, Curler's Corner is family-owned and operated and has been providing curlers of all levels from beginners to world champions with the equipment they need to give their best performance on the ice. Whether you're looking for a broom, shoes, a slider, gloves, embroidery, or customized apparel, or simply looking for gifts for your next bond spiel, Curler's Corner has what you need to fill your curling equipment needs. Drop in the Curler's Corner at the Calgary Curling Club. Give them a call at 403-270-0220 or visit www.curlerscorner.com. Curler's Corner, your one-stop curling shop. Eve, I just wanted to start off, I guess, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I'm doing a, a kind of a new series this year called Behind the Hack, and it's more about taking uh, the viewers into the minds of elite curlers and try to find out how they perform under high pressure in big moments. Mm-hmm. And you've had many moments over your curling career that I would consider big, <laughs> massive. Uh, <laughs> skip of Team Scotland, you won the European Championships in Moscow, the 2000. 2013 World Championships in Riga. You're a four-time World Junior Champion. You represented Great Britain at the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver and the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, where you actually became the youngest ever skip male or female to win an Olympic medal, which was the bronze there. So huge congratulations, Eve, on all your successes for yourself and your team. Thank you. Thanks so much. Now, I do remember, and I don't know if you remember, but I remember seeing you in 2010 in Vancouver mm-hmm. and thinking, she is just a child. <laughs> I have always yeah. remembered that. Yeah, like I guess back then I was I was pretty young. I was just, just 18. Um, but the scary thing now is like I've, I feel like I am still quite young, but I'm known as probably one of the, the more experienced athletes, one of the most the more experienced players, which... I don't really want to be known as that. I still want to be a young person, but I'm not anymore. Um, I'm, I'm grown up, I guess. You are. And I think, like, so does that bring with it pressure? More pressure because you can't fly under the radar as the young 18-year-old. You're now the mature, experienced player. And so do you feel that is a little bit more pressure? Do you know what? I, I do. And I do a lot. And I think that only really kind of hit me probably when it came to to Sochi time the Olympics because as you say like the last the years before that like Vancouver Olympics like I, I was young and yes I'd won three world junior titles before Vancouver but they just seemed to happen if you know what I mean like every minute we had such a laugh we enjoyed a bit it's like you didn't have an awful lot to, to lose you you kind of called a game that that you wanted to call yourself and you felt like you didn't have a lot of people kind of judging you and kind of telling you what you should what you should do um, differently, if you know what I mean. But I think now, like as I say, when it came to maybe like the Sochi Olympics and the World Championships before that, I felt a lot a lot more pressure. I felt I felt as though a lot of the the kind of competing countries were I, I want to say kind of catching up with us. Then I realised that I kind of had to go out with my my comfort zone if I wanted to to win and do well. Like I think a lot of people know me like I, I called a really very pretty aggressive game kind of back then, and I was kind of fearless. But that that's only going to last for so long, and then and then you realise that you have to make some changes. You have to to play a game that that's going to beat the opposition and not kind of make you happy. So that's that's probably the biggest the biggest kind of change for me. And like as you say, like, yeah, I do feel now that, that there is a lot more pressure because I've got results, but I don't want to go back down the way. Like I want to keep expanding on on that list that you that you read of at the start there. Yeah, and you know it's funny, I wonder if it's too where um, you know, I always feel like there's two types of pressure. There's internal pressure and then there's the external mm-hmm. pressure. And so 
sometimes it can be both where you're feeling pressure from the weight of the country and you're feeling your own pressure of the weight of your expectations because of what you would like to do to perform at those events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think when it comes to to what, how we kind of set up here, it's maybe slightly different because like World Championships, European Championships, we have Scotland on their back, so we're just representing Scotland. But when as soon as it comes to the Olympic Games, we're representing Great Britain. And that's huge. Like that's a huge difference and a huge jump. So instead of just having um, probably like Scotland behind you, you've got a couple million more people kind of behind you watching it on their kind of daytime TV. I think we get like nine hours coverage every single day, and um, it it does bring a lot more pressure. But I think now that I am one of those more experienced athletes, having experienced two Olympic Games, like every every game. I'm, I'm learning more and I'm learning how to switch off from, from what you don't need to be involved in and what you don't need to think about and just kind of focus on what your job is there and focus on what you can control, can control the controllables. And well, yeah, and that's well said because I remember going into the 2010 Olympics in our home country in Vancouver and mm. the best advice we were given was from our sports psychologist and she said, you know, you have a choice as to how to view all this pressure. You can either say, this is mm -hmm. awesome. We have, you know, 30 million Canadians cheering us on, or we have 30 million Canadians expecting us to medal. So yeah. we, we kind of went down the path that they're cheering us on. This is great. We would never have 30 million fans ever again, so let's enjoy it. Yeah, let's enjoy it. And let's yeah, thrive under that kind of excitement and that and that pressure. Because, it, it, like, as, as you know, it's a little bit easier for us to, to get a chance to to represent at the Olympics compared to you guys, where it's a, a very tough Olympic trials, and you've 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 got to slide under that excitement and that pressure. It's it's the pinnacle of our sport, isn't it? It and is an unbelievable um, chance to get there in the first place, let alone in your home country. That must have been um, phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, it it was, and and framing it the right way. Um, was, you know, an art that I always look back to the sports psychologist that helped us get through those times and that I still work yeah. with after that and before that. And I think, you yeah. know, it becomes all else is equal at that point. Your talent and my talent technically and tactically and strategically is pretty much when you get to that level of play is all going to be about the same. It's kind of what's between the ears that's going to get you through. I 100% agree. And I think, um, like, what we are doing um, just now is, like, we were lucky enough to get on ice the, the start of August, so we've had a, a really good kind of month's training camp. Um, Glenn Howard, our, our team coach, he's been over uh, last week. He was over for about eight or nine days, so we had a good, um, a good, a good kind of camp with him and, and the rest of the girls to kind of fine tune everything before we go into the season. And I do believe, like what you said, all the hard work's done um, before competition, all the hard work's done before the Olympic Games. And, and when you get to Olympic Games, um, I do think it, it's, between, it's between the eyes. It's, it's what goes on in, in your head, the, the majority of it, definitely. Um, and it's a, it's a lot of hard work that has to go into managing that. It is. And I think it's, it's a lot of hard work, not just on the kind of physical side, but a lot on the the mental side as well to make sure that you're you're in that that good place when you're there and you haven't got external and internal um, kind of hindrances going on that that's gonna that's gonna help you um, that's not gonna help you perform the best you can perform. Now I'm gonna go down a path a little bit about golf for a second because I think there's so many parallels between mm -hmm. golf and curling. Um, I love the game. I took it up late in life and it has become a massive frustration for me. But I am <laughs> the most frustrating <laughs> game ever. <laughs> Thank you for telling me that. You were a what? You were a scratch golfer. You're now a plus three, I think. Um, yes. Yeah, so way beyond what I am. Um, but you did you have the opportunity? I understood to become professional. You received a couple of scholarship uh, offers from some American universities. Yeah, like when I was when I was younger, um, it worked out ideal because I could basically curl in the winter and golf in the summer, and and that was perfect. And the way obviously the sports going now, being a full time athlete, being a full time curler, you, you just can't do that. And I did have to make the choice whether I wanted to kind of go down the golf route or or go down the curling route and. I'll be honest, it wasn't a very difficult choice. I think with my, my family being really involved in curling and 
for me, known my, my potential I could have had in the sport of curling, like it wasn't something that, that I wanted to give up. So it was difficult, obviously, turning down the, the couple scholarship offers I got, because um, I knew if I, I went out to the States, like I, I wouldn't be able to, to curl at the level I, I wanted to and what I kind of dreamed of wanting to do as a child when it came to curling. So the golf clubs kind of took a bit of a backseat in the winter, and um, in the summer I still love to play. Um, I'm maybe not quite as good as what I used to be, and it gets more frustrating when you when you turn <laughs> up and you're not as good, and you, you'll know that it's 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 very very hard and, and annoying. But um, I still love to play. It's such a great social sport, and really just to switch the mind off from the curling and to focus on something different. No, that's you know, and and, and you hit the nail on the head. Where I think when you start to choose, you you chose curling. Then your focus is, you know, 24-7, 365 days a year curling. Mm-hmm. You've got to shut your mind. You've got to take breaks away yeah. from it. And, yeah, and one of the best ways is play another sport. So then you're the perfect person for me to ask some questions about this because I think there's so many similarities, and I wonder yeah. with you playing both at a high level. You know, you talk about, the, you know, putting and draw weight, how similar that is. One of the other things I think that's so similar between golf and curling is the thinking time. You've got yeah. way too much time between holes or between ends that you can think, and you can either make it a positive or you can make it a, a negative. Yeah. You can think yourself into a hole. The length of the games, uh, it takes you, you've got to concentrate for golf can be five, up to five hours, curling mm-hmm. can be up to two and a half. So how did you use your golf talents, and, or what golf talents did you use to contribute to your curling game and to help you, um, you know, move your curling game up to that next level? Yeah, like I think it's a, a very, very interesting um, subject, and I think it just shows you that there is a huge relationship between the two sports out there. You look a lot of the the top Canadian guys who are um, world class curlers, like they're also high class club golfers as well. Some of them being pros, and um, there is a lot of a lot of similarities. I, I want to say, like I guess both curling uh, and golf, like the it comes down to millimetres, doesn't it? And I guess oh, yeah. the, the object of, of the golf ball or the curling stone is really, at the end of the day, to get it on a very small point on a very large kind of playing field. But I think the kind of mental discipline is virtually the same in either of the sport. Um, but I guess the similarity as well, like adrenaline can also overrule, overrule you. Um, and if you lose your kind of control and your emotions for either of the games, of curling before you throw a stone or for golf before you take a shot, like that can that can kind of take take over you, and that's your your inner emotion. But like I think what you said about the similarity between putting and and curling, like you've got to be able to read the conditions. I think that's that's one of the the main things. Um, like green, obviously, you've got to look at the slope, um, the speed. Um, the ice, you've got to look at reading how, how much it's, it's going to curl. Obviously, there's slight high points, low points in, in each sheet of ice. Um, you've got to look at the weight. You've got to look at the speed. And, and all these are different aspects that you, you need to consider. But also, in both sports, these, these kind of external conditions change. Like, as you know, a sheet of ice can, can change in the two and a half, three hours. And... You could start up on a golf course in um, green number one, and it's dry and sunny, and by the time you get to the 18th, it's absolutely bucketing rain, and and the the green speeds have changed. So there's lots and lots of similarities when it comes to thinking and and the mental side of the of the two sports. One of the one of the things that golfers talk about a lot is the walk between holes, and they said it mm-hmm. it can be deadly. It gives them way too much time to think and assess and yeah. self-analyze. You know, you start to think about that last shot and what you're going to do in the next shot. And I think that's really similar, as we were saying, between the time between shots, especially for a skip. Yeah. So you miss yeah. your last shot of an end, and you now mm-hmm. have another entire end where you have to dwell on that. Yeah. yeah, so from a mental perspective, what do you do yourself if you've just missed a shot or even made a great mm-hmm. shot? What are you saying to yourself, and how are you dealing with the that those inner voices? Yeah. I guess really, like that's one of the, the hardest questions that people ask, and it's probably <laughs> one of the hardest things to answer. And I do wish I knew I knew what the button was, or I knew what the the correct answer was, because it's very very difficult. Cause it's it's 
so easy to say, yeah, you, like you miss a shot. Oh yeah, just forget about it, move on to the next shot. Like, <laughs> yeah, that sounds easy, but really, actually doing it is is the difficult part. And like for me, I'm I'm really bad at kind of overanalyzing and um, like I'll, I'll constantly think about, oh, like I knew I should take more ice there, but like God, that's in the past. Like don't don't dwell on it. Yeah. But I think as as a team. What we've learned to do is my, my team will maybe give me a couple more minutes. Let's say I do miss a, a draw to the post um in the, the ninth or, or whatever end, so I've still got another end to go. Like My team will kind of take over that kind of pre-game, pre-game start and chat and give me another few minutes just to kind of dwell on what I've done, let my mind go a bit crazy, not slam my brush, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then... And then I'll kind of step up and right, right, I'm ready. Like let's, and then just focus on on what the next goal is. And I think it's it's really important to have your kind of pre-end chats focusing on what the outcome of the next end is wanting to be, what your goal is for the next end. And and if you can just focus on that, and as I say, forget about what happened the end before, then that's the best you can do. And I think when we spoke a little bit there about the, the similarities between between golf and curling, like in golf, I guess they they're they're out there on their own, but the high class guys they've they've got a caddy, and obviously with their caddy they can discuss shots. The caddy can kind of provide like positive input and consider kind of each shot and and the kind of like the weather, the what's happening out there, and, and curling as well. You've got your teammates that provide you with the provide you with that important information and, and they provide you with the positive input. Um, so so really, even though you think golf is an individual sport and curling is a team game, it is, but it isn't. Because the caddy, I always believe, is a massive part um, of, of the golf team and the same with the same with the curling. But it, it does come down, I think, to, to the way you are with your teammates, the way you support, the way you are as a unit. I think that really does help the way you, you bend shots and move on, definitely. Um, well, you talk about the team versus individual, and now I, I'm sure when you go play golf now, you're without a caddy, you're just going out on your own. <laughs> but yeah. do you enjoy, do you, what's the, what, what is the plus with the team sport, and what is the plus with the individual sport? I think the plus with the team sport is you've, you've got each other's backs, and, the, and I think for a team sport, you've always got someone there to, to back you up and, and support you and um, kind of dig you out that hole if you if you get into it because we all know like if you're you're having having a bad game like some games you can go on and, and you can just feel draw weight and you'll know that yourself but no one can no one can help you with that like a coach cannot teach an athlete at all what a kind of certain skill feels like and it all comes with within your kind of own perception and and your own feel. And that's what it's like on a, a crown sheet of ice. So that's what I find. You go out some days and, and you have this fantastic feel. You, you know exactly what draw weight is, but you go out again and you don't have a clue. So I think having having a team behind you in those circumstances to, to kind of reassure you, to back you up, that, you, that you're not, you're, you're, you've not lost this feel forever. Like, believe you me, it, it's going to come back. But it, it's um, making sure you're working really tightly as a team and really supporting each other, having each other's backs and, and that's something as a team we've worked on really, really hard and, and I can only see it see it getting even better in, in the next few months hopefully and hopefully over the, the next few years. On the other hand, in individual sports I think it also has its advantages. Um, but I wanna say it probably has a little bit from, from the way I look at it, maybe not as many advantages because Let's say you are in a rut. Let's say you are struggling. There's no one. You're on your own. You're isolated. You've got you've got no one to to help you and to to reassure you to have your back. But it can also be a good thing. Sometimes, like when you're when you're not playing well in a curling in a curling game, like you sometimes just want to be in your own. You want to actually. <laughs> um, so it has its kind of positives in that way. And for me, being able to go and pick up my golf clubs, go out from a game of golf, and and just switch off from everything. Like you're on your own. You can really analyze everything. You can think everything. You can you can kind of experiment different kind of techniques, different different lines, um, and and just switch off and um, have your own space. It, it is very different, um, but I do think both have their definite advantages. 
You you talked. You said one thing that uh, you know kind of made me listen about the uh, team and and having players your players around you that you know. And and I remember when I would be struggling, say um, there'd be one player on the team. It was actually Carolyn who could always mm-hmm. approach me, and she could either see that I was doing something with my release, or she could give me yeah. some word that would help me withdraw weight or whatever the, mm-hmm. the struggle was. It, who is yeah. that on your team for you? I think I want to say like. Me and Anna up in we but we worked really well together, um, being obviously the the top end in the team and and I think that's one of the most important relationships there has to be between the the two at the top end and the two at the bottom. End. For me, when it comes to to looking um, at my dolly, like Vicky is is really good with that. She's she knows my kind of release inside out. I think we played each other. She was telling me this is about our ninth year anniversary or something ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> That we've been playing together, obviously, bar the, the one year in 2010. So she does know me me inside out. She knows what buttons to push when, when things are going well, and she kind of knows how to get me out of that rut when, when things aren't going so well. So Vicky always has a few kind of key words for me, um, but I'm the kind of person that's, that really goes on feel. I'll always relate back to the draw shot, or even the previous game, I'll always say, oh, maybe a couple foot on from the draw shot, or Vicky would be like, oh, it's got a wee bit slower this game, just a couple of foot on from that last game. Like, we kind of relate really well with, with feel. Like, I, I hardly ever um, ask for um, stopwatch times at all. Um, that's just kind of not the way, the way I work. No, and I, I have to say I love that. It's, uh, and I mm-hmm. think play, a lot of players are going back to that. I, you know, the I numbers. Totally agree. Yeah. The numbers just don't do it. They don't give you any kind of feel. We used to years ago, and I mean, this is before you ever play the game, I'm sure, but we used to talk about, okay, so draw weight is like our home club uh, M3, or, you know, if we would, yeah, it was all feel. Yeah. And exactly. I think that best draw players out, and now everybody seems to be going back a bit, a bit to that. Yeah, um, I, I think that's, that's very true, and um, you can get caught up in numbers, totally, like, Looking at stopwatches, like it, you, you never take into consideration the push, the pull. You could, you could throw a, a fast three seconds. You could throw a, a slow three seconds. Like it's, it just takes it totally out of it. So I, I do agree with going down the, the feel route. Um, is definitely the way forward. And it's just the way I've, I've always worked. So. Yeah, no, and I, I think it brings your best draw players out. So now. Mm-hmm. The Olympic Games are obviously the one event that everyone has circled on, on their calendars for four years, and I'm sure yeah. you're not any different. And So how does your preparation, and I think you were already talking about what you were doing this summer, but how does your preparation and approach for an Olympic season differ from any other season? That's a good question, and I would like to think it doesn't differ an awful lot, or I don't want it to differ an awful lot, but it does. We got on ice, we actually had a, a brand new National Curling Academy opening um, in Sterling at the, the start of August, which has been in the talking talking for about 20 years. <laughs> it's I heard I heard it opened, and congratulations, Thank it looks beautiful. Thank you. It is. Like, what, what, a, what a difference having a facility of the standard it is. You don't have to worry about, is there skating on? You don't have to worry about the club curlers taking up all the ice and there's no ice available the ice conditions are great like it's just for the curlers just for the program there's so much space like it's 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 amazing it's so so good so for us we've been on ice every day twice a day for for the month of august we head out to canada for the first grand slam event start of september and we're out for two weeks we've then got an event in edmonton um, and the way we've, we've planned this year, we've planned it really, really quite carefully. We've kind of planned it to allow enough competition time, to allow enough training time, and also to allow enough um, rest and recovery. So really we're kind of two weeks on, two weeks off. That's roughly how it works. And, and Glenn, he was, a, he, was, he was great when it came to discussing our, our season and our um, time away and, and what the kind of balance looked like, because um, obviously he's, He's experienced it a lot. He's experienced a lot of kind of probably overplaying, maybe underplaying. So it's just trying to get that that balance perfect. And I was like, yeah, pe- we've done that well. Yeah, being able to or peak at the right few months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's it. It's peaking at the right time, and it's knowing when you're going to peak. But that's the hardest thing I think to to be able to work out or to know is 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 getting that timing perfect for for peaking. 
Well, and I think our Olympics, like I, I, I know for sure in Canada and, and even all the European teams and Great Britain everywhere, I think what's happened with the Olympics is it's caused teams to go crazy for three years playing for points, mm-hmm. trying to succeed points, so that they, I, you know, you can be on the podium and that you can be chosen or you can be one of yeah. the teams at the trials and teams burn themselves out. They, uh, I agree. There's so many more injuries. They overplay. It's just a crazy. I, I, you know, I love the Olympics. I think it's one of the greatest things that's happened to our sport. But it also comes with some negatives because I, I yeah. think we see some teams getting so burnt out and retiring early because it puts so much pressure on them so and their families. Pressure. Yeah, I know. I I totally agree. And I think you saw a lot of teams last year. Like oh, they they were starting off so so early. Like they're on the road all the time and like we 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 were bad for it as well maybe not quite as bad as we we were a few years ago and we realized like this is this is no fun we're not enjoying it this is not yeah. the way we want to we want to play so um this year as i said like we we've kind of sat down and and it does mean missing a few of the the, the big events being like a couple grand slams but at the end of the day um we want to kind of be in the best shape possible we want to be in the best game possible when it comes to the Olympic Games in February. Um, so if it means making a few a few difficult choices, for example, we, we also turned down the Continental Cup this year because the timing of that, we just didn't think it, it helped with our preparations towards the Olympic Games. And, and for me, like I hated saying no to that because I love that event. I know. The, the best events ever, but... Um, we have to look at, at, at what's best for, for our team um, going into the Olympic Games in February. Yeah, and I think teams really, uh, you know, I remember the year we worked on it, and, and all teams kind of do this, and it could be the world, it could be the briar, but they basically back it out from the event. So you say, look, I need to be, you know, two weeks out from the event, I need to have a weekend where I'm, you know, physically getting some rest, where I'm mentally resting, where I'm not yeah. playing or on a plane flying. And, and you, yeah. you know, they do these peaking schedules, and it doesn't look like what our schedules typically do where you're playing every weekend. And so that has, lot, you have to say no. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize how how much it drains you traveling like the yeah. amount of people you speak to oh it must be it must be great traveling the world it must be great traveling. you're like yes it is but like traveling does exhaust you and it takes days to recover and they're all kind of crucial days that you're that you're obviously missing either training or or like rest and recovery um so it's exhausting it is and i'm sick of airports like i can't stand the places I know, and I, you know, and for you guys, you look at Canadian teams. We maybe have an hour, maybe at the most, a two, three-hour flight to get somewhere. You guys come mm-hmm. over here. You're traveling. You are on the plane. It's a much longer flight, even, especially yeah. if you come out west. It's it's I what know. is that flight out west for you guys? Probably about nine and a half hours. Nine yeah, hours. okay, nine hours, which is ridiculous. And how do you yeah. how do you with all that traveling? How do you guys give your yourself the best opportunity to be ready and and be recovered when you arrive to play at an event well that's also an aspect of it that that every time you do it you're learning and we're lucky enough here in Scotland we've got a really kind of really professional kind of support team behind us who are experts in in all those different areas and when when it comes to we always try and have like a plan before before we go we have a plan like as soon as you step on the flight you you change your you change your watch to the destination time, and you try and get into those kind of meal meal plan patterns, um, so your body's adapting to that. The worst bit when we're travelling, let's say out west, is is staying awake because you get there and it's maybe like six seven o'clock in the evening, and <laughs> and for us back home that's like four and four a.m. and you're absolutely shattered. But you need to try and stay up and go to bed at the kind of usual bedtime, let's say 9, 10 p.m., usually wake up at crack of dawn, 5, 6, but you need to try and try and get in that routine of, of um, your sleep pattern, and, and it's difficult. We tend to use, the, obviously, the doctor here, they, they prescribe us with, like, sleep, sleeping pills that, that we occasionally use just to try and help us get over get over that jet lag and, and get as, as quick as we can into, into that... Um, time zone or into the the pattern and it is an aspect that we are we are getting better at and I think our bodies are maybe just getting a little bit more used to it but it's it's difficult and it is it's a lot 
It is, <laughs> and it does drain you, but it's part of it, isn't it? Now, how many how many trips you typically make in a year to to North America? How many trips, and how many will you make this year? Um, to North America, typically, I think last year we were in Canada about five times. This year we are over one, two, twice for for two um, double competitions, and then hopefully it all goes well after the Olympic Games. We have a a playoff because we miss our Scottish Championship, so we have a playoff against the Scottish champion um, to qualify for the world. So with the okay. world, I think it's North A, isn't it, the ladies? So yep. we have another opportunity to go there, and then hopefully if we have a good season, we'll be back out for, for um, Players' Champs and Calgary for the Champions Cup. So possibly kind of four, four or five times. Um oh is usually an average of how many times we're out there a year. In in addition to South Korea. <laughs> Very true. And we're making a trip actually to Japan as well for, for an event in December. We played there last year and it would be great to go back there and like we absolutely love Japan. Um, yeah, I, you know what it was one of my favorite places oh, to curl. I love it there. Same. I absolutely love it so we didn't want to turn that down. No, they treat you <laughs> so well. It's oh, uh, yeah. so great. Yeah. So now we, we were talking about South Korea. Um, your team was recently selected by British Curling to represent Great Britain at the 2018 yes. Games. So that was that must have been the most amazing mm-hmm. news to get. Um, yes, you know, it was. Yeah, and it's different because many of the teams, I think, in Canada talk about the pressure of qualifying and then qualifying for and then winning the Olympic trials. But can you kind of talk about the pressure on a team like yours that has been, and I think we touched on it already a bit, but you've been selected outright by your national federation with the expectation of, in my mind, at least a podium finished. And mm-hmm. I know you just finished a weekend working with the British Olympic Association. So can you just tell me about the pressures and what it felt like to be chosen? Uh, to, to get the, the phone call and to say that you've been nominated by British Curling um, to the British Olympic Association to be to be part of Team Great Britain is is a feeling that, that really you, you don't you can you can't practically you can't, you never get to any other time. Like the feeling's unbelievable. It it gives you butterflies and having that phone call three times now, like each one has been extra, extra special and they don't um it doesn't come up without a lot of hard work and for me Every Olympics has been very special, but for me, I do believe that that this one's going to be a little bit more special. And I think that's because, like my my two brothers as well, are, are part of the the men's team. I know and that Thomas was amazing. Being, you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thomas being Kyle Smith's um, vice and and Glenn, who they're taking as their alternate. So for me to to get a chance to compete in a at a Winter Olympics um, alongside my two brothers. Is, is really, really special. And I know my, my parents are, are really proud, and I think for me it's going to make it really, really special. Um, and as you say, like we just came off a weekend there with the British Olympic Association. It was an, an athlete summit um, where, where all the winter Olympic athletes get together. And I know for you guys in Canada, I don't know many how many hundreds you have in, in Team Canada for the Winter Olympics, but... For Great Britain, um, we've got we've got a kind of field of about sixty athletes, I think, that, that head out to South Korea. So it's a very very small small group of athletes. Um, obviously, the kind of curlers take over a lot of them. Ten of them. <laughs> so it's it's really exciting, and it takes a little bit of weight off your shoulders, I guess, for us knowing that that we are we've got that ticket on the plane, like we're heading out and. For a lot of the other countries, they either have playoffs or there's selections um, coming up. So um, it does take a little bit of weight off our shoulders, but it also puts a little bit of pressure on our shoulders as well, knowing like, like we are going. Um, uh, we are going to those Olympics. And um, having medals at the at the previous one, um, it does put a bit of expectation on you that really we have to we have to get that podium again or you're kind of expected to get that podium again. And, and that's definitely what we're fighting for. Now, you just finished, I think, this past weekend, was it that you worked with the British Olympic Association? Now, was that with all the athletes, and, and what were your kind of main takeaways from that weekend? 
Yes, it was. It was with all the, the winter Olympic athletes. So a lot of the guys would know the Mike Hay. Um, he's the actual British Olympic chef de mission for Korea. So he's obviously got a, a curling background. So it's exciting to, to listen to Mike speak, um, him being the the boss when it so called when it comes to to the to the Winter Olympic team. So we did a lot of kind of team building. Like Team Great Britain are very much um, kind of one team, and they like to put to put across their kind of values, their their goals, and um, really just a lot of kind of team building with the other athletes, getting to know each other. And we got a little sneak preview of what our kit's going to be like. For instance, um, we heard from a lot of the medical staff who are going to be out there, a lot of the kind of backroom staff that are going to be out there, and what what our kind of apartment's going to look like in the village, and, and just the kind of breakdown of of the the kind of travel, and and really it was to to reassure us that we concentrate on ourselves and all the little outside things and all the little external things are are kind of taken care of and we don't have to worry about all that which is which is great yeah that's exciting and and you know it's it's an interesting feeling to go from being your own team you know team mm. head to being part of team great britain and being part of a bigger oh, it team is. it's such an exciting feeling it is it's it's so so exciting and um, i actually can't wait till um I think the 1st of February we, we head out to Japan to that holding camp for a week or so before we before we head into the village um, on about the 7th of, of February. And, um, I'm really, really excited and I can't actually wait to, to experience another Olympic Games. And, um, it's it's going to be an exciting season leading up to it. A nerdy season. I want to talk a little bit about uh, visualization and, uh, and if your or your team uses it very much. I, you know, and I go back to golf again because I think, honestly, Jack Nicholas was really probably mm-hmm. one of the first golfers that ever talked about visualization. And that was back in the 70s where he said that he never hit a shot without first seeing it in his mind's eye. But the one yeah. big difference I see in curling and in golf is that in golf you get a couple practice swings. You get to feel what it's yeah. going to feel like. But when you curl, you're down at the other end, you race down, you sit in the hack, you get no opportunities for a practice swing, and you now have to execute and make a tough, difficult shot. So yeah. my questions, question kind of is for you, do you do anything to help you in curling to give yourself kind of that practice swing in your mind's eye before you throw yeah. a shot? Yes, I've got, a, I've got a very um, kind of set pre-shot routine. And if someone asked me to sit and go through my pre-shot routine, I'm not sure if I take because it's so it's so engraved in me. Um, it just happens, but I I don't such I don't visualize. That's one thing that that I don't do. My my main thought of is when I get to the hack, I just think of the weight I'm going to throw. I think it just comes down to weight, 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 and um, whether it's a an up weight normal shot or or a draw to the button, it all comes down to what weight you throw. Um, so that's usually my my main kind of thought when it when it comes to to the hack. But I always stick to to my pre-shot routine. I'll always, if I'm not 100% sure, I'll always ask Vicky or Laura, my sweepers, like, what kind of weight is it? Is it a couple foot on? Is it a couple foot off? And they'll kind of reassure me of of what the of what the weight's like. And I think as well that that's very different or very similar, sorry, between golf and curling is that. Both your your pre-shot routines, like they kind of end immediately before you kind of execute the shot. Like in golf, you have your couple practice swings, and then the end, and then you have to execute. In curling, you come down to the hack, you go through your pre-shot routine, and then you have to execute. So I think that's a that's a similarity. And both you have to be as relaxed as you can prior to your shot, um, because if you've got any emotions going on or or anything you're not quite sure of that are kind of biting away at the back of your mind, the chances of you making that shot are, are very slim. So I just really try and empty, empty my mind, and all I'm doing is thinking about the shot, all I'm doing is thinking about the weight I'm going to play, and have full kind of belief that my team know that I'm going to make the shot, have full belief that they're 100% behind me, that I've got the right information for them, and if you can get all the right information, if I've got the brush in the right place, and if I throw the right way, no excuses, the shot should come off. 
<laughs> well said. It's funny you you talk about it, and I like to hear that your last thought is weight. And you know, I was always that way because I think the age-old question that I don't know how many skips have been asked: if you have a player throwing, you know, at second position for you, would you like them mm-hmm. to hit the broom or throw the right weight? And I've always been one saying I can do more with weight than I can ever do with uh, someone hitting the broom. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, you can. If you throw the right weight, you can afford to be a couple, a couple inches in or out, and you're still going to be pretty close to making the shot. But if you throw the wrong weight, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> no, no. Now, no. I know from watching you over the years, there's been how many occasions in big games where you've had to make a big, like a double takeout or a run back with your first stone, mm-hmm. and then now you go down and you've got to follow it up with a draw to the pin on your second one minutes later. So. Mm-hmm. Do you, what process do you go to, through or do you have anything to help you relax, you know, to go from being so up from making this exciting yeah. run back to now throwing this draw to the pin? Yeah. Do you know, it's something I actually practice a lot individually is um, the change in, in like, shot. Like, I'll kind of vary up my practice. So I'll throw draw, barri- well, barrier. I know you guys don't board weight. <laughs> draw, board. <laughs> And then maybe back to draw, and then I'll maybe throw a peel, and then you've got to get that transition right. You've got to, you've got to be able to switch from from throwing that big heavy weight to sitting and throwing a draw weight. And nine times out of ten, people will throw that heavy, won't they? Because they're they're adrenaline through the roof, and they're they're super excited for making that that double run back the the end before. And I, I know for a fact I'm I'm probably bad for that, but that's where I guess your team has to come in and help you as well. They've got to kind of calm you down and and maybe even slow you down, um, and that's probably the, the one of the, the main parts is is just slowing yourself down, just take that extra second, um, and just go straight back to your usual pre-shot routine, your usual discussions with your your team when it comes to ice picking and um, what weight you're going to throw. But it, it's a difficult one, um, but it's it's just not getting carried away in the moment. Well, and I, I like what you said about you you're, you practice like you play. You're trying to, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. mimic practicing for the games. And, and it's interesting. I mean, I've been in the same situation where you sit in the hack, and I really noticed over the years, it took me a while to notice it, but that my front end would, at those times, when I'd just been excited, made a great shot or yeah. something, and now I've got to throw a draw, they would yeah. say, hey, we can take this a long way. And I think what they were trying to do is yeah. tell me to underthrow it. Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah, I quite often as well, I notice that, like I know my dad used to do it, I remember him saying that, I can't remember when I played down the rink a few years ago, and the players in the hack, and just them, but just kind of, just to kind of slow them down, and uh, maybe take a little bit longer cleaning the path, just so it kind of, it slows, it slows them down in the hack, um, and basically the same as what you say, like, yeah, they can sweep it a long way, so in other words, don't overthrow this. <laughs> you can do <laughs> nothing with a heavy stone. <laughs> no, nothing. And that's the great thing about team sports, though, isn't it? Because, you know, you're yeah. not all on your own out there, and you've got four people that are thinking all the time, trying to get the best out of yeah. each other. Yeah, so, exactly. So you talk about your team, and, and I don't know what your system is for post-game and pre-game, but what do you guys do regarding debriefs and post-game and pre-game meetings and talking about shots and strategy and ice conditions, do you kind of have a set way that your team goes about that? We do. Um, we always like to, um, let's say, before a competition, we'll maybe have a, a pre-competition kind of chat and, and just discuss what kind of what we want to get out of the weekend. Um, win or lose, I guess, you're always wanting to learn and you're always wanting to, to, to get better at different, different bits. So we usually sit down and have a, a pre-competition chat and then before every game, we'll also get together, and I guess that's when, when you discuss the rocks, you discuss um, who you're playing, if you know any kind of strengths, weaknesses for them. You have your warm-up, and then post-game, we always do have a debrief, and I think they're probably the most important. Like I, I do believe that that's where all the learning is. Like You learn what you did wrong and what you did right, and I think a lot of people do forget you've got to, you've got to take away from what you did well. Um, as well. So we're lucky enough we usually work with um, a video analysis who will film our games and, and kind of tag every shot so we sit down in the debrief and let's say Glenn says oh you know I'm not sure what you're doing here, sixth end, sticky second shot. 
like Kenny or, or Vision Analysis can click that up within a second and, and has it has it up on the screen so we can we can discuss through um, the tactics and, and anything that, that kinda we should have maybe done differently or, or reassure us that we did do the right thing. Um, so I do think that's a very important part is the, the pre and post game talks. But then again you're gonna know when when to switch off sometimes that's very short between games. Um, but you've got to make the most of most of relaxing and, and whatever kind of ticks your boxes to be in the right mind, mindset um, before the next game. Now, there's a lot of teams now, and that's, you know, increased so much over the years that consult with a sports psychologist. And, in fact, I think there's a lot of teams that just have a sports psychologist really mm. over a traditional coach. So I know yeah. you work with Glenn Howard as your kind of traditional curling coach, but and I know you work with a mental training team in Great Britain, but what um, has been the benefit, and do you work with someone specifically there? Yeah, we do. Um, we actually work with um, a lady called Kate Goodyear, who um, she's from from down in England, and I actually worked with her, or a team worked with her back in the 2010 Vancouver cycle. And um, so we brought Kate Kate back again last year, or the, the Olympics in Sochi. She actually worked with the the bobsleigh team, I think. So it's great having having Kate back, and and really with her we do a lot of the kind of team team dynamic side of it. What makes each of us perform at our best? Like what can we do to each other to help us perform at our best? What can we do when someone isn't performing at our best to to kind of get them out of that that kind of rut, um, and really just get the most out of each other? And it does come down to uh, supporting your team and. For me, the biggest part is being open and honest. And sometimes you have the most difficult conversations. Sometimes you have, uh, like girls, as you know, like you speak about things that that really you don't want to speak about. But if it's going to help the team, you have to you have to address these things. And for us, we're a very very tight knitted team. Uh, we say we're we're four best friends, and we've cuddled each other for for years and years. Anne and my sister is actually going out with Glenn, my brother, so we're almost family as well. <laughs> like it's, it's, we're very, very close-knitted, and, and as I say, I think if you can have those open and honest conversations with, with each other. That's really that that will make you um, that will make you kind of separated um, from the best of the worst. As if you're if you really are 100% um, honest, and that all that it's not going to go at anyone. All it's doing is is to kind of benefit your performance, isn't it? Well, it is. And, you know, and, and I remember many of those conversations, some I never wanted mm -hmm. to have, but they all yeah. were worth it in the end. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So since Sochi, your team, I mean, you are one of the best in the world, um, and, and you've qualified for the Worlds every year. You had a bronze in 2017. You've had three podium finishes at the Europeans, and a whole bunch of Grand Slam titles. But you haven't reached the top of the podium at the Worlds or the Europeans since 2013. So mm -hmm. do you think that, the, I guess the first part of my question, does that weigh on you, or are you progressing and learning from some of those? You know, I always talk about learning from the losses and trying to build a team and, and be stronger because of those for the big moment. And do you think that's, the direction your team's going. I do, yes, and um, of course, it's it's obviously it's always in my mind that since 2013, like we we haven't been at the top of the podium. Like we won the world then, and we got bronze at the Olympics, and then since then we've had a couple bronzes at Europeans, a silver, um, and then a bronze at the Worlds just passed. So it, it's it's obviously it's hard to pinpoint why that is, but I do think that. We have made a lot of changes in different ways, whether it's a couple of team changes, whether it's a coach change, whether it's bringing, as we said, a, a team psych on, on board a psychologist. Um, and I do believe that when when you make all these changes, and you're gonna you're you're gonna lose your performance, you're gonna go down before you're gonna start to build up the way. And I do think that getting that bronze medal at the Worlds last year was was really kind of us coming back up the way and. I feel as a team that coming into this season we are in a, a lot better place and I do think that if we can just keep learning from our losses and I'm always a firm believer of you've got to learn how to lose before you win um, and if we can keep learning and keep 
getting a lot of um, tactical knowledge from from Glenn Howard because as we all know, like the game's moving on. It, it, every single year, it's getting it's changing. Every single year, other countries are coming up with different ideas and and getting better at different people in different areas. And it's really just making sure you you put all these little inches together and and bring it all bring it all to the to the sheet of ice. And I do believe that. After these kind of few years of of kind of being there and thereabouts, but not being on the podium, has probably helped to to be a little bit more hungry and a little bit a little bit um, more excited and, and ready for the season to come. I, I love what you said. I think what happens a lot is teams have. I mean, you are the one of the best teams in the world standing here now, and I think what happens when you have some great success early, the the, the bronze, mm-hmm. your Sochi then you look around and you go, but I want more. And so what you do yeah. is you start to tweak and you change. And always, and teams don't understand this and they get frustrated, when you make changes, whether it be coaching, whether it be players, whether it be tactical, strategic, yeah. you're going to get worse before you get better. You and are. Some teams don't make it through that period to come out the other side to be even better mm-hmm. than they could have ever been. I know. And and I guess we've been going through that and we have been um, – kind of battled on and I'd like to think that we're we're maybe through the other side now but time will tell I guess <laughs> well and and another thing you know you you talk about and I remember I had it pasted on my mirror for years and and it was a note that said I never lose I either win or I learn and that's exactly. how great teams get built and you guys seem to be on that path to you know going coming out the other side and a lot of teams yeah. never make it out of the the muddle. They never get out out of there. They they do all the changes because they know what mm-hmm. they need to do. Um, you know, yeah. to get better because teams are improving around all of us. Well, not me anymore, but around all the players. Every year, teams are getting better yeah. and better every they time you come back to play. Yeah, I to- totally agree. And I find that when it's exciting at the start of the season, when you, when you see all the teams for the first time, you, you're all like looking, oh, what are they doing differently? Or well, they've got a different player on board, or well, who's that person sitting in the crowd, or you know what I mean? Like you're always looking to see what other teams have done, or or what changes people have made. And <laughs> um, you obviously now all the talk is the the brushing, isn't it? Like every year someone seems to turn up with a different idea of something, and um, then everyone jumps in the bandwagon, and then <laughs> like it's it's always exciting. I always think the first part of the year. It it is. Uh, we were the same way. Um, you talked about Anna, and you talked about the back end relationship, uh, or the top end, as you guys refer to it, with your skips and your thirds. You know, I think there's very few top teams in the world where you don't ever talk about either how great the front end was or how great the back end synergy was together. And you and Anna seem to have that chemistry, and you've referred to it a mm-hmm. few times in this conversation. You're you got a solid friendship, a lot of trust. So what does Anna specifically bring to you and the team that, you know, that intangible that people wouldn't really know about? Yeah, like like me and Anna, um, we get on great. And I think what makes us similar is, like, we're all, we're both very competitive and very driven to, to the same goals. Like, we both believe that, like, as you say, like, we are good enough. But I think we both know that you're going to go through some tough times before you kind of come out the the dark end of the tunnel. And for Anna, obviously, she suffered injury last year. And that was, like, that was horrible. Like, to, to miss Anna for, for those few months or in the season was, was very difficult. And in a way, I do believe that, that for Anna herself, that it, that's really made her stronger and it's really made her kind of, drive more and um, come, come fresher um, to the team. And me and Anna have a, a really strong relationship in terms of in terms of kind of being on the same being on the same page, being on the same wavelength. But we very rarely kind of disagree with something, um, which which makes it which makes it pretty easy. But then again, if we do disagree, like you have to obviously relate back to your you're in a kind of business mode, you're in a work mode, like forget the friendship mode, like it's kind of work time um, and you have to kind of have those tough conversations like what I said, but at the end of the day, like it's it's what we do, isn't it? It's, it's how we how we perform at our at our best and it, it's always tough, like as I say, when she, she's in a relationship with my brother as well, so when it comes to kind of family side of it, like me and Anna with each other a lot of the time, like I'll, I'll go home at the weekend and, and Anna's there with Glenn, but she's just part of that now and, and I love <laughs> that, that's really exciting. 
Um, but you, we try not to speak too much about curling when we're when we're, when we're not on the ice rink, which is which is good. And we still obviously enjoy time away, like shopping, going away on holiday, little things like that. So yeah, it's, I love Anna. Like me and Anna get on great. She's she's as you know, like she's a very bubbly character, which which fits in really well. She never hardly gets kind of upset. She's always full of energy. She'll be the first one to, to kind of ask you how you are, how you're feeling, um, if there's anything she can do to help you. So, yeah, I, I love it, and it's, and it's great. And now, and it's it's so funny now, because I talk about you being from the curling family. Your dad past world champion and Olympian when it was a demonstration sport, and now you've got mm-hmm. your two brothers are going to be part of Great Britain's team. And Anna's part of your family, but how does that help that being part of a family gets it? They understand what you do every day. How does that help you when you're doing well, I guess, with your celebrations mm-hmm. and, and when you have some struggles and difficult times? I think it, it, it has definitely helped me knowing that, that they understand, like, like, what I do day in, day out. And, like, what was really, really good when I was younger is, like, I was never, ever pushed into sport. Like it was, it was all my choice, and my parents knew I enjoyed it, so they they kind of let me do it, and as I say, never pushed me into it, and like really kind of had my back for for the whole the whole kind of years before I could drive. Like they were my my local taxi service <laughs> for many many years. They're also my piggy bank as well for many many years. So. Um, they they have helped out a lot. Like they always try and come to as many major championships as they can to, to support us, and it and it does really make a difference when when they know what you're doing. And I guess the downside to that is if you're playing a game and you make a stupid shot or this, like you'll come up and die. They'll be like, oh, what the hell are you doing there? So I guess it does have its downsides, but. Um, all in all, it, it's great, and it, it really does help me knowing that that they understand and and they're fully supportive, and and they really do encourage us as much as they can. So I have three final, quick, kind of rapid questions on three topics. I just want to touch on really quick. So yes. attitude. Have you ever had an issue with attitude, negativity, and if so, how have you handled it? Um, I think everyone has, and I think that's that's when it comes to. I always believe that. You have to have a team of four people that all want the same thing. You have to have a team of four people that that all want to be as good as each other. And if one of those people don't pull their weight, that impacts the whole team. Like, there is no I in team. Like, if one person doesn't perform well, if one person doesn't practice, if one person doesn't train in the gym, like, it, it's going to impact. It's, it's going to impact performance, and it's going to impact the whole team. So... I guess that's where um, the kind of attitude comes into it and, and realising that you all have to have the same attitude and if you want to be well, all, all four pe- people have to pull for, for the same goal. Now, motivation. Does it become a grind to you or has it ever to be motivated to practice, to set goals? <laughs> have you ever had to really push yourself to get out the door to go throw rocks or is it just something that you are good at doing, being motivated? Yeah. I do, I love getting up and, and going and throwing stones and I think when the day when the day comes that my alarm goes off and I really cannot be bothered getting out of bed and going to practice will be the day that I realise that maybe I've done, I've had enough, I've, I've done too much. Um, but right now, um, I love practicing and I love kind of being motivated in the morning to get up, knowing that I've got challenges ahead of me. Um, I love kind of setting setting little standards each day that I want to achieve this, I want to be able to do that. Um, and just kind of, even just conquering something in, like, your, your technique, like, technically, like, knowing that you've, you've really made a difference that day. But I do, I do, I am a very motivated person, and I do love getting up soon every single day. That's awesome. Good answer. So final, perspective. How, because you've had a lot of fame, success, um, you've got expectations from yourself, your friends, your country, how easy is it for you to retain perspective, to understand mm-hmm. that this is just a game and nothing more? Yeah, so I guess with, with the Winter Olympic sports team being very, very strong group, Britain, you do get a lot of spotlight on you, and I guess you do get a lot of media attention, and, and that's the bottom line. But you have to know and you have to learn when to say no, and I think that's one thing I've learned over the last few years, that... You have to realise when you've when you've done enough with, let's say, the media. When you've done enough 
what your what your job is. End of the day, like I guess I'm an athlete, my I'm a curler, and we don't I don't really want to kind of get distracted off track track with that. But it's it's weighing up the options. Like of course I I would love to um, promote curling as much as I can in Scotland and in Great Britain, and I do do that. Um, but for me to grow the sport even more, what what the what what I can do is I guess win medals, and that's what gets the the publicity out there. So. It's realising, I always believe, like when to say no. <laughs> Sounds easy, but it's when to kind of put a hold on, on um, things out with the actual game of curling and um, concentrate just fully on that. That does it for episode five of Behind the Hack. My thanks to Eve Muirhead for joining me and thanks to you for listening. Join me next time for the next episode of Behind the Hack.